Blog Talk Radio. Aloha. Welcome to Talking Pictures with Paul Booth. I'm your host. Well, of course, Paul Booth's going to be at your host on a show that's named Paul Booth. Okay, I'm, I'm not that funny. Today we are joined, this is our first female filmmaker Friday episode. Uh, we are doing this to uh, support female filmmaking, and that in turn also supports indie filmmaking. And we're not doing it just because there's a cool Facebook movement of photos. Uh, we're doing it because part of why I do this show is for my grandmother, who wanted to be a filmmaker and was held back from the opportunity because she was a woman in the 60s and 70s and was told to just be a homemaker and et cetera. So there's a lot more to this than just that it's cool marketing or it works to hook some audience. So I'm going to start off dedicating this series to my grandmother. This is episode one. Before I ramble on with a little bit more maintenance, I wanted to welcome our guest, Cameo Wood. Are you with us? Hey, hi. Nice to see you, Paul. I'm I'm really happy to be on the show, and I'm looking forward to our talk today. Excellent. Thank you, Cameo. Uh, For the audience and new listeners, uh, we are so uh, glad to have uh, Cameo kick this series off. I I didn't discover it. I mean, for myself, I saw it at CineQuest last year, which is going on now. Uh, Stay tuned. We'll have some CineQuest reviews later this week. Uh, but uh, I met Cameo. She was, it was so kind of her. She uh, gave me a ride to this party that was quite, I would just say, not close if you don't have a rent-a-car. And it wasn't to get press or get on the show. It was just to be genuine. So I thought, this is really great. And I had seen her film, so it was nice to uh, see that connection and understand that she's coming from a real place. So her film titled Real Artist is available on iTunes and what other platforms, Cameo? Uh, it's available on iTunes and uh, Amazon. Uh, it's on Seed and Spark, Labocine, uh, OP Prime, and Google Play. Excellent. All over. That's fantastic. Uh this is, of course, a short film, which I love now that, well, not, I, I'm not saying it just started, but I love that the distribution companies are finally in the realm of film giving a, a voice to short filmmakers and not just feature filmmakers. So today, uh, Cameo, I forgot if I had told you or not, uh, here with our interviews, we, we jump around. We don't just do where are you from, ABC, because we think there's enough shows that do that. So I wanted to first kick it off with, uh, it's a double question, so if you could, A, just tell us what you'd like to tell us about the film, mixed in with what was the spark that made you want to tell this story, the moment where you said, this is what I'm going to make. Sure, that sounds great. Um, So the film is about a young woman who is interviewing for her dream job at a large animation studio, and through the course of the interview, finds that the job isn't quite what she thought it was going to be. And it's a a little bit of like a a thriller. Some people compare it to like a Black Mirror episode. Um, So... 
And then as far as, you know, something I like to tell you about the film, I guess, uh, you know, <clears throat> we, this, this was sort of my, um, this is my first narrative film. I had also made a documentary, um, a solo documentary in Mongolia on just like my iPhone. So this was a very different film in that we shot it on 35. And um, I also wanted to make sure that I gave as many opportunities to people as possible. So I, uh, you know, this is before the inclusion writer had really happened. And so we made sure that we had um, about 75% women and uh, 50% people of color in the casting crew. So I'm pretty proud of how that all worked out. And as far as the spark that made me want to tell this story, um, I think uh, it started when I was uh, about to go and take a flight and this was when they were, um, the airlines were saying that you weren't allowed to, um, you know, look at your phone or whatever during takeoff. So I, uh, I decided to get, like, a magazine or a book. And I got a copy of tech, um, MIT's technology review, uh, Sci-Fi. Uh, and so it was, like, a bunch of sci-fi short stories. And I read this one by Ken Liu, and it was, um, you know, real artist. But I come from a background of neuroscience and artificial intelligence. So one of the reasons why I decided that, you know, I wanted to tell the story while reading this was one, it was a very confined story. It only had two characters, one location. Um, and I also felt that I had a very unique background and that the story does touch upon themes of artificial intelligence and neuroscience. So I felt that I was uniquely situated in order to tell this particular story. Wow, that's very, that's really interesting and thorough, uh, especially since you're mentioning neuroscience. And um, only twice in, in my life, I've, I met one guy who was a, a film major, minor, minor in chemistry. And I said, what, well, why would you want science? And he said, well, uh, chemistry is learning what elements go together. So he said, to me, that's what a film is. You're taking the element of acting and cinematography and directing, and you're seeing how the elements work. And I was pretty blown away. I was, I mean, this was 15 years ago, so I was obviously much younger, and I wasn't really getting the value of what he was saying, and he was younger than me, so it wasn't like, uh, you know, this PhD was talking to me. And then also we've had a guest, um, which I'm sure you know, uh, Valerie Weiss, uh, She's mm -hmm. now directing major television shows, and she's got this extensive background of, as a Ph.D. in biology and a master's. And so it was also interesting to hear from a scientist. And I had said to her, I go, when, when I meet scientists who make films, I never really get this vision of, like, people in lab coats sitting around talking about rear window or, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> transferring the, the mm -hmm. turtle eggs and saying, did you see seven yet? You know? So yeah, definitely right. the great thing about this film to where I recommend it to you guys is that uh, it, 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 it is a thriller. It is uh, very subversive. Uh, I wouldn't say, uh, did you specifically say that you wanted to be, uh, you, was it that you just wanted to reflect society or or was there a political side of you that wanted to kind of, uh, that you wanted to slide in there? 
Well, I think, uh, you know, regarding some of these topics that the film covers, um, I think that, you know, a lot of people are aware of the ability of technology right now. So um, all the tech that is in the film um, is certainly possible. All the, all the you know, there's like a, there's a drug in the movie, uh, Tabula Rasa, and that already exists, not by that name, but it already exists. Uh, you know, we, we use AIs all the time, but we don't think about them. Uh, you know, the AIs that we have in our pockets that we use every day or, you know, whenever we use a maps program to get somewhere or we do a internet search for something, um, those all use AI. But we don't think of those as like as AIs. We think of those as just tools. And so I think that um, we we sometimes other what an AI is uh we um we sometimes you know the AIs we don't know we call AIs and the AIs we do know we think of as just like apps or you know or just tasks so i think that i was trying to make a little bit of a comment about um about how you know this technology does exist and it's not necessarily the technology that is intrinsically you know valued valued as evil or negative or dangerous, but um, just uh, another reminder of how humans have always used technology and how technology has always been, um, you know, unknown and dangerous until it's something we use every day and then we don't think of it as technology anymore. Oh, that's that's a great answer because I know, as we all know, we're uh, – so I mean I was I oh I was at the doctor's office the other day and there was like 14 people and every single person was doing something on their phone and it did look like a creepy sci-fi movie because it was like it was just I was just thinking to myself like you can't just be in the moment or uh, be waiting for the doctor or you know like it's it, your film. Uh, you know, just now, like, I feel like we've become where we can't just be where we're at in that moment. Um, so I, w- I was fortunate with Camp Mills film that I got to see it a few times. So I want to say to people that uh, when you, you know, when you rent it and some services, I know Amazon, I don't know the other ones because I only use Prime. You know, if they give you having it for 48 hours, uh, watch it a couple of times, or if you buy it, definitely watch it a couple of times. I'm not saying it's a film that requires a few views to get it, but what's nice about it is, is I saw it today for, I think it was my third time, and then I watched it again, and it kind of, the fourth time, it was a different movie to me again. So I wanted to, I was going to tell you over email, but I wanted to congratulate you on that cameo, because I think that is the hardest thing for a filmmaker to do is to create a film that evolves and isn't like, Oh, well, I saw this last year, so it doesn't work. Cause I already know it's going to happen. Uh, so my, my, my next question is, was there anything other than budget that made this not become a feature? Because this is one of the, you know, maybe 10 shorts where I'm kind of like, oh, I would have rather seen the feature, you know, like, because I just want more, like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm hungry. So what was, was there anything besides budget that kept you from turning this into a feature, or were you just 
specifically setting out to make a to make the version you did? Well, I think that I always set out to make this version. Uh, I, uh, as a short, you know, so I had read the short story and I, I was looking for, uh, you know, very specifically for things that um, were very, um, you know, uh, finite, that were very uh, contained and easy to shoot. Because um, as I said, this is my first film, so I didn't want to have my very first film be a, be a feature. Uh, and, you know, this is a... This is a world that we were looking at to make into a um, into a feature, perhaps someday. But you know, it was specifically chosen um, for my first film and to be something that was um, not written to be filmed, but was perfect for filming. Oh, okay, I see what you're saying. That's an interesting uh, because for for me, I was really. I mean, obviously, because I was told it was a short and I saw the, um, I always check running times just to make sure I can give a film the the time in one sitting and not like, oh, I'll finish it after dinner. So I right away knew it was a short and, uh, I, you know, I think you had told me it was in the shorts program, but I I really enjoy when a short has you get to the credits and be like, but wait, what, you know, like, is there ramifications? Is there you know, just any film, not yours, uh, is the character going to have this consequence? Is, uh, what, you know, how is something going to tie into this? So again, uh, everyone, uh, you really should be, um, checking this film out. We're going to switch gears a little bit because again, this is about female filmmaker Friday. So it's not just about the film and the release. This will be a series to profile, uh, we're never personal. We don't gossip. I guess never have to ask, answer a question. So we want to actually profile filmmakers uh, so we learn a bit more. So one of my first questions would be uh, how um, you said you had made a documentary. Was that a short or a feature? Uh, yeah, so that was, a, that was a short as well. So that was just okay. um you know, like a, a five minute short. Okay. So the general question that, you know, unfortunately we always have to ask was what made you want to become a, a director? Uh, and not just, I saw such and such film. Like we both know there's that thing that, go, that goes, I have to commit this many years. So what wanted, what made you want to make films in general and get into that, that world? I had always wanted to uh, make films, and I was always a student of film. My my family, when I was uh, around 12 or 13, started a, um, a video store, so it's a pretty classic tale. So I was watching a lot of videos and had access to videos. Um, and and so I, and I was a regular rewatcher. I would watch the same movie, uh, you know, ten times in a row to figure out how it worked. Uh, but in, um, but I didn't think that I could make a living doing that, so I went into um, engineering instead. So I was an engineer, and uh, I studied medicine, and I worked for tech companies for a long time um, because I didn't, you know, really think that I could uh, 
support myself as a director. And also, you know, I didn't really, there weren't that many female directors anyway. And it wasn't an industry that I knew anyone in. I didn't know anyone that was a filmmaker. So it was hard for me to know how to get to that point. Uh, So here in San Francisco, we're really lucky. We have a group called uh, called Scary Cow. And it is a film cooperative where you pay, you know, like 30 bucks a month and you have access to a group of hundreds of filmmakers who want to make films for free and help each other out and learn how to make films together. Um, So every weekend there's, you know, five different films being made with a whole bunch of people just volunteering their time. And that's how I started out. I, you know, my very first movie, I was there not knowing anything, and I was a script supervisor. And then I became a first AD and, you know, sort of went from there, um, costume designer, like whatever they needed. And, you know, everyone was a non-professional. So it was a really great way to um, figure out the industry and, um, and learn, like, just how to be on a set and what the jobs were. And then the very first thing I did was um, was I went to Mongolia with just – uh, you know, my iPhone and an iPad and a couple of GoPros and decided to go shoot a documentary and figure out how to do that. Wow, that's very uh, interesting. And, and my gosh, I'm so jealous you had a video store. I know I would have dropped out of school in the eighth grade and studied film and then, and then, try, and then, got, then went to JC when it was time uh, I, like you were saying, being young, I was so fortunate to, I can relate to what you're saying, to have a father who uh, is a filmmaker himself and is so into movies that it was always kind of just like DNA mixed with what we were doing Friday night was going to the movies or renting something. So it wasn't like uh, there was like five choices, what do you want to do? It was like, what do you want to rent? I'm going to the video store. So by osmosis and then also just uh, the the actual DNA. Like some people tell me, oh, you watch too many movies. And I'm like, okay, well then tell me that I look like my father every time you see me because um, it's, it's in my bloodstream. Uh, so what I, what I wanted to know is, uh, and it's without having the big meaty question that it is, um, you had mentioned not knowing a lot of, uh, directors or other females that wanted to make film, has things have evolved? Uh, how do you feel? Because the first time I started meeting so many female directors through this show, I didn't know that there was so many women that wanted to make film. Uh, I hadn't met a lot of film or you're on a date and a girl brings up Francois Truffaut. If anything, I had the opposite to where girls were not interested in making films or were content with being a second AD that makes 250 a day and they don't have to make creative decisions. They just have to. So uh, now that things have turned, because you were someone that experienced and you said you didn't know a lot of women making film, uh, how do you feel now and where do you feel this came from that like now all of a sudden it's like there's, 20 million women who never got to direct, but then like you were saying, you didn't meet many that wanted to direct. So how do you feel about the role of 
that if you don't say you want to do something, then you obviously don't end up getting to do it. Does that, did I word that properly? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, so you, you asked a couple of questions. And so the first one was, um, you know, how things have changed. I would say that, uh, you know, when I was first making, um, when I first sort of like joined and started getting really involved, there were a lot of women and, um, but, you know, and, and there were directors in our group, even when I first started, like, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and I'd say, you know, and I already knew of a couple of women filmmakers, uh, like Catherine Bigelow, for example, she's a pretty big one. Um, but I think I, I wasn't, um, you know, I, everyone else that I knew in the industry at all, like even just peripherally, it was very masculine, especially DPs. Um, and it, and it was, you know, very, uh, it was very, uh, you know, sort of bro culture, I guess. And it, it definitely excluded women in a lot of the way, um, you know, conversations were had and, and, and some of the, the talk and that, you know, for the most part it's fine um, that this was an established culture that I was sort of an interloper upon. Uh, and I think that in the last couple of years, you know, with various initiatives, there's, you know, the group Film Fatals, which started out um, in New York and was for um, women directors. And then they, I think it was just last year or so, um, they decided to only focus on feature directors only. So they um, had previously included shorts and webisodes, and then they decided that there was just, the pool was too large now. So then they decided to only focus on features. So then Cinefems, um is another group that does um, 501c3 sponsoring and has lots of amazing projects. And so they sort of took all of the shorts on, all the shorts directors. And it's been really uh, it's it's been quite nice to be a part of that uh, of those of those sort of groups because they're entirely women um, and they have a good network of people in the industry who want to support women and want to uh, and have been made aware of a dearth of opportunities and are trying to uh, create them and I think you know finding those little light spots in the industry have been helpful and supportive. I would also say that, um, you know, Kodak has been incredibly supportive. Um, they've been uh, very kind and have been making an extra effort to um, support women in film that are shooting on celluloid. So, and, and I shot my film on 35 with a grant from Kodak. Uh, Skywalker helped me out uh, a lot. Um, Panavision gave me a free camera. So I, you know, I think that I, I'm certainly benefiting from a lot of these, um, a, lo a lot of the new awareness that's been happening. And, you know, regarding your comment of, you know, of women not necessarily knowing Truffaut, I would have to say, you know, um, if you sometimes look at these, these books that are uh, teaching cinema, um, they, they, they rarely talk about women directors. They kind of don't exist. Uh, I was just recently looking at uh, Scorsese's 
uh, masterclass, which I'm taking with a friend of mine. And when you when you look at his masterclass and all the films that he's suggesting you watch, I mean, obviously he is a fantastic, um, you know, very very accomplished filmmaker. But um, you know, for the most part, he's only recommending that you watch, uh, you know, Italian movies or French movies, Italian neorealists, um, and he's, you know, and, and obviously he's talking about, you know, Godard and Truffaut and whatever, Visconti, and, um, you know, women kind of don't exist in his world, and these are, these are stories about men and for men and made by men, and only men are really talking. I mean, you know, Goodfellas is an amazing movie, but... Um, you know, is this a movie that a woman sees and sees herself reflected in? No. I mean, and does it have to be? Absolutely not. But it does sort of exclude women from, you know, what they think of when they think of filmmakers and what they think of, um, you know, it doesn't really reflect the movies that they might necessarily want to make. And I think that's why people like Dee Rees made such an impact because here was a, a woman of color who was talking about, uh, being queer and in a culture and society that was very, very much against it. That's also why Moonlight was so important. And these are stories by people who have been excluded and their voices have been um, silenced. And I think that that is going to make a massive difference in the way that we talk about films and the directors that we think are important. And I think, you know, Truffaut is definitely important, but I think, you know, honestly, you know, when we look back, People like D. Rees are going to be right there. And I think it's important to really think about the impact of what we see on the screen and how it influences where we are in the world and what we think we can do. Well, yes. Uh, I mean, Mudbound and her film Bessie, and of course, on Mudbound, her cinematographer, Rachel Morrison. We were so lucky to have her on the show. And, um, and of course, with what Black Panther's doing. But the one little thing before I uh, responded to what you said was um, when you had mentioned not many people say it or talk about it. Uh, where do you what What do you think that? Uh, sorry, how do you think that plays into that? Um, as I had mentioned, if if you don't tell anyone you want to do something, and then you don't get to do it. And then you're turning, it's, uh, I guess the better example would be my father's going fishing. I don't tell him I want to go. And then I say he never takes me fishing. So where do you think that plays into some of the, like my grandmother's a classic example. She never, she didn't tell her support system or people around her, I'd like to explore writing a film book or just doing something in the biz. So there was part of her where she had to say, well, I also wasn't given opportunities, but I also didn't put in the world that I wanted those opportunities. So um, how do you feel about that aspect of there being less uh, female stories, like like you're referencing Scorsese going back? Um, How do you feel about that aspect of it? Well, you know, I think... um... I think that the the question that you're asking has a couple of complicated answers in that um, certainly between the time that we last had uh, filmmakers in the 30s who were doing, who were running studios like United Artists uh, 
And up until, you know, recently when we have a few more female filmmakers, um, women were, you know, excluded from having their own credit cards and bank accounts. Oh, right, yeah. Excluded from having jobs. Um, so, you know, I think that, you know, the answer to why didn't we have women saying that they wanted to make films, like why were they silent? Well, they were silent because they're, like, they weren't allowed to study these things and they were ostracized by society and they had no opportunities. So then your next question, you know, so then it goes into why were women not making films, you know, after that point, after they were allowed to have credit cards as recently as, you know, the 70s and 80s, which is when women started being allowed to have credit cards distinct from their husbands. Um, so it wasn't even that long ago. It's like, you know, 30, 40 years. So, um, you know, and in that, you know, way, I mean, for me, I, I probably did say all the time that I would love to make films. I also wanted to be the CEO of AT&T. Um, but, you know, my family, they're factory workers. You know, they make $15,000 a year. Um, you know, they, they usually die by 35, most of the men. Uh, right. You know, there's not a whole lot of opportunity. We have no college education. So this idea that somebody could go and just make art um, with no chance of reward, really, or uh, a stable living and not know anyone, I mean, it's essentially a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. That's what that is. And the hope right. that it works out. And, and the reality that, like, if you don't know anyone and you don't know how the industry works, it's probably not going to work out well for you. Um, it does not work out well for the majority of people who get a one-way ticket to Los Angeles. Um, so, uh, you know, and I think that women do put out in the world that this is what they want to do. I mean, if you look at um, how many, uh, you know, programs there are for women to um, – there's, like, specialty programs for, um, you know, women and people of color for NBC and CBS, and, and they get – thousands and thousands of people applying to get a chance to learn how to shadow and then only 1% of those getting in and none of those people really getting an actual job at the end. Um, there's so many people that don't know anyone and are trying to figure out how to get in, whether it's through writing or um, you know, some, through some other method. But, you know, when you, when you, go on to a set and you're the only woman and everyone assumes that you're stupid or you don't know, or you don't have the right connections. And if you were talented, you would have those connections or that you'll cause a problem because they can't make the same jokes around you. Um, and you're not part of the crew. Um, that's another reason why, I mean, who, what, like what person wants to be, um, in a group that, you know, feels antagonized by your presence. Uh, and that's just because, you know, if when, you're, when you work for, you know, 20, 30 years in an industry where there are no women and you have a certain culture and society in that, you know, within that group, um, sometimes it can, be, it can be weird to have, you know, women on the set. Uh, and we're seeing that now with, like, the Me Too movement with, you know, this casual sexism and active assault that was supported and endorsed by the industry. And so, you know, and that's another reason why women, you know, and I hear that your question is why aren't women speaking out, but I think that they did and their voices were silenced. I think they were silenced by society. I think they were silenced by rapists. 
silenced. And I think that they were silenced by, you know, people who were, you know, were making sexual jokes or innuendo and telling women that they needed to grow up because this is how things ran. And I think that's changing now. Um, but I think that now, because we have such a culture and society around, you know, silencing women, um, and now that's being changed, the door needs to be open so far in order to make that happen. And, you know, we do need to have women who have no credits hired over someone that has a ton. And that's a hard thing to swallow as well. I mean, um, but that's the only way it's really going to change. Yeah, no, that's really great. And you hit on some interesting things because I, for myself, I grew up backwards because I grew up with, uh, you know, like my grandma always said, her greatest achievement in life was getting a credit card. Um, And so with the business, I, from getting my first PA job to my first mentor to my first being printed in a movie magazine to who convinced me to start this show to it used to be more than half of our podcast producing team were women uh, was always because of women. So I never had any kind of uh, didn't want women around or thought, why are they here? In fact, I wanted more uh, women because of, I have female friends that I'm very close with. And I wanted to hear those unique stories and that uh, the tiny things that are different, that aren't human uh, emotions that we both have. And um, so for me, I, I never had a reason to separate because I was like, I would have never gotten that PA first PA job. I would have never gotten that first PA job on a big movie. Um, I would have never been printed in a magazine. So, uh, to me, it was like, and right now, if I was to write down on a list of paper, I know more powerful women than powerful men. And so to me, it never, I never saw it as, oh gosh, I have a woman production coordinator. I saw it as, I hope she's as cool as, uh, as Tina was, because Tina got me on two other gigs. And so uh, the thing in the industry for people out there that don't, that don't know, as you go into the studio part or the union part, um, you know, whether you are male or female, you, you are going to work longer hours as a PA and you are going to be doing stuff that some department head just doesn't feel like doing because they know they can go out and, you know, my first PA gig, I saw a department head straight up say, oh, wait, I can just tell the PA to do it. I want to start drinking an hour earlier. And it was like totally the department head's responsibility they were supposed to do it. They were supposed to have it done and they handed it to me and I had already been let go and they put me back on the clock to do their work because they wanted to just go out and get drunk. Now, to me, it happened to be a woman, but I'm not going to say she did it because she was a woman. She did it because she's a lame person and a crappy department head. So for me, what has been su- such an educational experience and why I've been so happy to meet so many female filmmakers and I'm so excited about what this series is going to open in terms of human dialogue, human issues, uh, movies, music, is that I can honestly say there's four or five women that had I not met, uh, I would not have a podcast. I would not have four films that got released to Amazon Prime. Uh, there's 
I can't even, I, I don't even want to think about had I not met them because I would, I probably would have dropped out of the business already. Uh, the only time I was ever going to actually quit the business, it was a female that I met on the set who convinced me to not quit. So for me, I've always had that blessing. So um, I've never walked into a room and been like, okay, I'm only going to network with one woman. I'm going to talk to whoever talks to me and I'm going to watch whatever film. And I've, and uh, so that has been very interesting. And if anything, uh, the reason why we've gotten by supporting it is because I can honestly say, and I, and I don't BS, I don't tell anyone what they want to hear. Of all the films we've covered for the show, I've never turned down a female-directed film because I only turn it down if it's not good. I don't look at it and go, you know what? It was good, but because it's cameo, I'm going to not say it was as good as it was. So the fu- not the funny thing, but the ironic thing here is, and that's why I want to encourage people to support female films, uh, I like to just say filmmaker, but I know we ha- we're in a time right now where we have to draw attention to it being female filmmaker, is that they're so darn good. And the big thing here is, is I actually killed some shorts that I was developing because I was like, the last three guests have set the bar so high, my films aren't going to get into festivals. So I need to just step back and be a talk show host. You know, <laughs> like, so in a weird way, uh, female filmmakers have inspired me to not only find my place, but to not spend two years on an idea and then it doesn't go anywhere. So it's been such a great positive thing. Uh, do you have um, a, I want to talk a little bit about genres. Uh, has a filmmaker, um, and of course we know it's always got to be story and good script you know, putting those answers aside, uh, what are the genres that you specifically would like to explore as a filmmaker? Uh, yeah, I think I, uh, right now I'm, I'm mostly interested in, um, in either like science fiction or sort of puzzle movies. I love, um, you know, maybe uh, very organized fantasy, uh, historical dramas. Those are probably my um, my favorite genres, and those are the genres that I've written the most scripts for. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that those those would be the genres that I'm most interested in, you know, and working on. So right now I have uh, a TV show and two features, and uh, and they're all they're all science fiction. Uh, and and yeah. So so do you have um, uh, kind of the opposite question? Do you have genres that, no matter how great the script was or the story, et cetera, just you you wouldn't want to do that? Like you wouldn't want to make a horror or you wouldn't make a western? Doesn't matter, you know that you what it does for you or your career or whatever, just uh, what are the genres that you wouldn't ever, I'd never see your name on that genre. Uh, I, I don't think there's a genre I wouldn't do. I think that um, I'm not super interested in telling um, stories that 
and I don't think anyone even wants to make these kind of stories. I'm not super interested in making stories about, um, you know, the exploitation of, um, of vulnerable communities. That's not something I'm super interested in telling or, um, you know, for example, like I, I don't really want to tell a story about like, um, women being, you know, kidnapped and raped or, you know, Catholic school boys being, you know, harassed by their, I mean, I think that there's enough stories about vulnerable populations being hurt and attacked. And I think that, um, that's not something I'm super interested in doing. I mean, if there was truly an amazing script that helped to elevate the conversation, I would think about it. And I'm not necessarily a political filmmaker, but um, I also don't think that anyone's really looking for, you know, oh, I really need a another movie where a woman gets, like, kidnapped and raped. That's what I'm really looking for right now, you know? Right, um, right, right. For other types. Yeah. I, I think that we're looking for other types of stories that um, are elevating conversations. And I think that, you know, we already have enough of these um, and I think that it's also important right now, um, and I think it's always been important to uh, tell something new. And it doesn't mean that, you know, we can't retell, like, Shakespeare or, um, you know, ancient Egyptian stories. Um, there certainly is room for that. But I think that, um, you know, almost anything can be made new again. And there's always opportunities to tell a story in a way that's important and is relevant to um the conversation of society. I really like that answer, and thank you for mentioning the Catholic altar boys because there's been multiple times where I've heard elders say uh, that are women, this happened to me, and we're hearing more and more about it happening to women, and then they're like, you know, the altar boys, or that boys have also been assaulted, or boys have also been molested, and uh, men have also been propositioned at work by their boss. I mean, I have a, one of our producers uh, is a gay man and he's like, yeah, I've had bosses say, get on your knees or hit the road, you know? So moving away from a serious topic like that, um, uh, how, uh, I'm interested in this question where I, w- I used to write a epi- uh, two different series. One was called Women in Film and one was called uh, Filmmaker Fridays. And I told my friend, uh, who's a really great filmmaker, she's won some big festivals as a short. She's a assistant to an A-list director. She recently received a credit on a, ma- a producing credit on a major studio film. And I said to her, would you, how would you like to be on Women in Film? And she wrote me back and she said, could we just remove the women in film and could I be in your filmmaker Friday? So uh, where do you feel other than when it helps advance the cause or these wonderful groups that are out there, where do you feel like that at some point you're just a filmmaker and you don't have to specifically say I'm a female filmmaker or a woman filmmaker to where you could just say, I, you know, I'm cameo. I'm a director. Um, you know, I, I think that's a that is a really difficult question. Um, there's, you know, been some talk about whether or not there should be a Academy Award, for example, for um, for female cinematographers or for female directors. Um, as you know, 
um, only Rachel Morrison, who she was on your show, right? Yeah, and oh, and she was she's so wonderful. I don't know if you've ever met her, but everyone out there, I mean, obviously, don't walk up to her and bug her. But if you ever have the chance to meet Rachel, she is so humble, so kind, uh, so giving. I mean, we had a fifteen or twenty minute scheduled interview, and it went like fifty five minutes, and I actually ended it just because. I noticed that it went too long. Otherwise, I think we would have went another half hour. But I'm um, sorry, go ahead. You're mentioning Rachel Morrison. So, um, you know, Rachel Morrison was the very first woman that's ever been nominated for an Academy Award for cinematography. And so the question is, you know, all right, so obviously women can get nominated. No one's won. And she's the very first one and hopefully the first of many. Uh, but you know, there's this thing where, um, you know, there, there's so very few awards and most of them are sexist. Um, and we know that because, uh, you know, if you look at Cannes or Berlin or, you know, a lot of the bigger festivals, um, they, you know, the, the numbers of films that are accepted or nominated or awarded are in great disparity with the films that are made and submitted and are awarded awards elsewhere. Um, so, so then we have this problem of how do we resolve this? Because we certainly don't want to have an award that means less than the regular award, which is, I think, what you're, the guest that you were mentioning um, was responding to, this idea that there's, like, the filmmaker award and then there's the woman filmmaker award, which is considered to be less. Um, however, in an industry where an Academy Award really means something, um, and we do have gendered awards for actors and actresses, um, you know, to have an equal number of um, women cinematographers and women directors every year um, that are now accepted into the Academy and accepted into the Academy as winners and nominees. Um, that would mean that there were, you know, four new female director nominees every year and cinematographers. I think that would change their visibility. When Frances McDormand was on stage and had every woman nominee stand, there weren't that many. So um, we have two options, which is continue down the existing path, which, um, you know, isn't super great. We did have another um, – you know, woman nominee this year for Best Director, that was Greta Gerwig. Uh, but right. we, you know, just didn't have, um, you know, it's always going to, I mean, not always, but probably for the foreseeable future, and certainly in the recent past, it's it's been very desperate. It's been, you know, and so that's that's something that it, that is hard. Now, with something like, um, you know, other types of organizations, like let's say, um, Sundance or Tribeca, where 50% of all nominees and everyone that is actually in the festival are um, directed by women, um, there may be less of a need because they've already sort of, um, you know, already loaded up all of the um, potential nominees. It's already 50 50. Uh, and that includes their judges, that includes the audiences. So, um, in that way, um, maybe it's less relevant, but certainly in the academy, um, it is majority white male and they're older. Uh, and we saw some of that when we learned that very few of the, um, of the academy, 
the people who were actually able to nominate an award, very few of them were watching uh, Mudbound or Get Out, right? So if you're not watching right. movies because you don't care and it's not your thing, there's no way for them to advance. So that's always been a problem as long as we've had um, any kinds of minority groups that the majority uh, is not very interested in sharing what they have. And then your options become, you know, having those one or two people that are accepted and like that breakthrough and you celebrate them or you figure out a way to um, give them those accolades until things are more equaled out. Right. I see what you're saying. And and see, Rachel is such a great example because, uh, when I saw Mudbounds, um, unfortunately, they wouldn't allow a screener, so I had to interview her without seeing it. And uh, I did that by looking at what I've seen of Dee Rees and then finding ways that they their sensibilities tied together, and I could spawn off or spin off of that. Uh, what the thing that uh, for this female filmmaker Friday, the reason why some questions are even brought up is because the title of the segment, uh, when I watched Mudbound, the opening shot, I said, this is going to get a cinematography nomination. And I didn't think uh, it won't because it's a woman. I didn't think it's good because it's a woman. Just like when I watch Roger Deakins, I don't go, uh, it's good because Roger Deakins has male genitalia. I go, it's good because he, sorry, Deakins is a bad example. That's like Yoda. Um, When I see uh, films, I like, for instance, Get Out. We had the cinematographer of that on. Um, For me to say, I didn't think the Academy just, I didn't think they would nominate a horror film because, and it's not a horror film, as you know, but on the surface, just because the Academy doesn't. I didn't look at Get Out and go, oh, you know what? There's no way in heck that this is a great subversive movie, but uh, Jordan Peele is black, so there's no way, and the acting's not good. Or also, I've never seen Denzel Washington and said, my God, I was moved by that black man. And I think partially because I was just brought up with, I cannot stand labels. I don't even like saying my own ethnicities because I think it's labeling. Um, so I think this has been, a, um, for me, it has nothing to do with, uh, I thought Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri was a better film than Get Out. And it, I don't think it was a better film because it was a white guy and my dad's from Missouri. My mother's Mexican. And I didn't think Get Out was less of a film because it had uh, an African-American director. So um, this really has been a great time of diversity and seeing different films. But then what you mentioned about Rachel Morrison, I mean, I was so pumped up because we had a talk about Sidney Lumet and Robert Altman. And I've never told anyone like she made a good point. I just said my guest, uh, this filmmaker that I was talking to brought up ABC about Sidney Lumet. Isn't that interesting? So um, I really like what you're what what you've what you've said um, and how you answered that question. So something that kind of also profiles you. Do you have? Is there something like some people they always listen to music before they write, or they have music in the background, um, or they meditate for two days? 
uh, is there something that you, is there a ritual you have? Uh, and I don't mean super private that, that you have before you write or edit or, you know, what, get, <laughs> I what do, gets your like creative? It's so gross and interesting. I'm going to tell you. Sorry. Okay. I, <laughs> I, um, okay. sorry I, I got so excited. Um, yeah, I do. I have a super gross ritual I do. It's really, really embarrassing, and I'll tell you what it is. So okay. um, I first discovered that this worked for me when, um, when I finished uh, my neuroscience um, uh, my neuroscience exams. I was basically cramming for 18 hours a day doing, like, you know, neuroscience anatomy and um, getting ready for, like, my residency. And um, at the end, and, you know, I aced all my exams, but I was, like, just so fried, and I couldn't even do anything. I was just so exhausted. So I got all my textbooks out, and I started watching House, MD. And um, I would race House to a diagnosis by writing down the differential and trying to figure out what the disease was before House did. And I've done this now like three times. So whenever like I've finished a big project and I'm about to do another project, that's actually what I do is I spend like a whole week and a half watching all eight seasons of House and I don't watch the last three episodes and I do the differential on every single one using all of my neuroscience textbooks. <laughs> oh my gosh. That's, that is so trippy. That is so, I love it. That's such a great answer. Um, I would, I just, you know, for me, I go with the simple, I throw on some classic rock or some blues or make a playlist for, I've only directed one short, but I've produced five or six shorts and, uh, when I was directing, whether I was writing, editing, or it was a shoot day, I had to have at least, uh, on non-shoot days, at least a couple of hours of music to, uh, for my brain to even type or go to the edit room. Uh, but yeah, that's a really, that's so trippy watching house. I really like that. I'm going to, uh, that should be like one of our advertising sound bites. Um, it, now, <laughs> sorry, I just I so wasn't expecting an answer like that. Um, so, <laughs> um, so let me just get back on track here. Uh, the um, so you, you had mentioned you're in San Francisco, which of course, for people that don't know, is one of the coolest places on the planet. I've been fortunate to go to 30 states, so I, I can judge the other cities. Um, and San Francisco is just, of course, has a rich, rich, rich musical history um and then there's just uh carlos santana put it best he said it it's a city that doesn't have a superiority or inferiority complex and that's what i always like about san francisco you can just go there whether you're there for a concert at the fillmore or there to take your girlfriend to dinner or there for a giants game or there to walk around you don't gotta worry about uh the things you have to worry about in Southern California, which uh, you had mentioned cameo, the, the one way ticket to LA thing. Of course, that's obviously the age old story. Um, did you get to have any experiences like uh, aside from uh, if you can name that organization again, was it Cine Sun? Cine? Oh, Cine Femmes. Okay. So outside of that or a specific group, uh, did you ever get the opportunity to like uh, 
PA a television show or PA a, a big movie? Did you ever get to experience any of, of those jobs or that world? Yeah, um, I actually got to go um, work on or, you know, sort of be on the set of uh, Legion for season two, episode three. Uh, Sarah Adina Smith was directing that episode. She had just finished her episode for the DuPlass Brothers Room 104, and this is her first big TV episode. And, um, and so that was, like, obviously, like, on a Marvel TV show. So, and that was in L.A. Um, shooting on the lot, and I think it was last October. That's fantastic. And and how were the, uh, you said the, the DePlatz brothers, they were the producers? No, she had just shot another TV show for the DePlatz brothers. So this one um, is uh, produced by Marvel. It's a Marvel TV show. Okay. That's, well, that's fantastic. That's so, um, I've, I've only gotten to go on the lot to, um, to, uh, cover uh, a screening or to go to a crew screening with, with my friend who does big effects films. And uh, so that's fantastic. You got to do that. Is there, you have a favorite lesson for you, not like a, a lesson for others. Do you have a favorite lesson from you, for you that you took from that experience? Um, let's see. I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think that, um, you know, so one of the things that's really interesting about um, this particular season of of Legion, which I'm pretty, um, you know, excited about. So I think uh, Legion season two starts on uh, the 3rd of April. And one of the things that they decided to do this year, um, this is probably the uh, middle of last summer, but um, the second episode is directed by um, Anna Lily Amarpour, and you might know her. She did A Girl Walks Home, sorry, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. So she directed the second episode of Legion. Uh, the third episode uh, is the one that I was on, and that one is directed by Sarah Adina Smith who was the director of Buster Mall's Heart. She did Midnight Swim. I was going to say, where have I heard that name? Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, And then um, Ellen Curras, she did the fourth episode. Uh, Ellen, um, you might know her. She was a uh, cinematographer on... um, on Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, and she's just a you know, a totally amazing um, cinematographer and um, now is getting a chance to direct. And she's been doing things like uh, she did Ozark and now she did um, Legion as a director. Uh, and so, you know, there's obviously a very concerted effort to make sure that um, this season had a lot of women directors. Um, Dana Gonzalez, she you know, she worked on Fargo and she's been working on like all these amazing things in the camera department and is now getting some director credits in TV. Uh, so I was really fortunate to sort of get in on this program where there, I mean, it isn't, I don't think it's even half, but it's, it's close. I think it's like what, four or five, four directors for 11 episodes. 
So it's a, it's a massive change for a Marvel show. And, you know, here are these women that have um, always wanted to direct and have been cinematographers for, you know, gosh, like 40 films, um, or they are first-time directors of feature films that are now getting a chance. Uh, you know, and I think that, um, yeah, so anyway, so one I think that one thing that I did take away from this is that these opportunities matter and that these people are absolutely up to the task. And, um, you know, if you let the door open a little bit, um, it's going to make a massive difference in, um, in the industry and it'll ripple through, uh, things like the inclusion rider change the set in amazing and dynamic ways. And I think that, uh, and it's really exciting to see all these changes as they um, affect the industry and, you know, would allow someone like me to go on a set like that. Well, that's great. And thank you for sharing that story. And the inclusion writer, for people who don't know, is is in the negotiation now for films. Uh, people can demand that there be equality and diversity and there's specific, uh, you know, it's best to Google it because I didn't memorize it word for word and I would hate to say wrong info, but uh, something that that brought up and I, and there's no generalization at all. Um, and I'm not, I'm just asking this as a blanket question. Um, and it spawns from one time I was talking to SAG and I was talking to them about their rates and I said, okay, so if I pay this much for this actor, I said, what do I do if the actor shows up hungover or forgets his lines or this um well within a few days a rep will come out and i said okay so i have to pay the actor this much if i'm late a minute but he can be late he cannot know his lines and then i have to wait possibly two days for a rep which means i'm going to be two more days behind shooting he's on contract so i'm going to pay him more so so all that came to my mind because i've worked for what I think is the worst production coordinator in the world. And I've worked for which, who I think is one of the best who has ran the set of Alexander Payne, Oliver Stone, Steven Spielberg, Cameron Crowe. Uh, again, a woman who saved my career many times uh, is that 100% for it, agree with it, believe it should be there. Uh, where do you stand on the inclusion writer that if I have to hire me instead of Denzel. Do, should I have to still be, be able to bring the goods that Denzel brings and not just that I'm being hired because there's too many Denzels on the set? Does that make sense without sounding like it's a, it's without sounding like it's a crazy question? Do you, do you, does it, do you get what I'm getting at? Well, you know, I hear your question, and I think that's always been, this is a classic argument of any kind of affirmative action. Uh, and, of course, you know, there's, there's always these, you know, these problems with affirmative action um, that have always existed, you know, and, and part of it has always been that the pipeline will not be as experienced and, they, and that you will have to settle for, um, for less than great actors. And I think that if, um, you know, this year's Oscars and the number of films that have made, um, you know, Get Out will probably make a billion dollars by the end of its theatrical run internationally. 
And I think that when we look at, you know, the cast and crew on movies like Mudbound or Get Out, I think that we, we know that movies can be made with a majority uh, people of color um, and female and queer cast and crew and still make an amazing movie. And so, you know, and, and again, we have this problem where, um, you know, crews and casts have always been um, historically uh, white men, always, and um, since the 30s, I should say. And so, um, you know, having this inclusion writer, which certainly not everyone's going to do, um, but the people that are, um, part of this will be, okay, so, you know, here you are, you're a department head, maybe you're a white guy, and you need to now meet some people who aren't white guys, but the same crew you always hire, you need to make some new friends, and you need to find people that are amazing, and you need to invite them on set and work with them. And you need to widen the pool, and that's another part of your job now. Um, and I think that that can be a challenge, you know, for people who might already have biases or resent the fact that they can't hire the same crew that they've always worked with. Um, but on the, on the flip side, if that's a problem that you can't hire outside the crew you've always worked with and they always are people just like you, um, then you should probably, like, then maybe this isn't the right industry for you and in that you are unwilling to um, listen to new stories and get new experiences and try new things because that's also what this industry is about. And I can, I totally get it's, you know, it's a new thing and it's a, it's a struggle and it's a new skill. Like if you've always worked with the same, you know, 40 guys and, you know, and, you know, you have like your gaffer team that you always work with and you know how everyone works. Um, I get that it can be like, you know, cutting off your leg and trying to grow another one. Um, and some people I'm sure will feel it's just as painful but on the other hand, we, you know, we have demonstrable proof that movies that have more diversity are very successful and can be very, 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 very successful. Um, and I think it's worth it because otherwise we're excluding, um, you know, half of the, like half of the filmmakers that want to be on these big sets and want to make movies and get these onset uh, experience and opportunities we're excluding women and we're excluding the minorities that, you know, like that one or two, you know, affirmative action hires that people do. Um, you know, if, if half of your crew has to be not white dudes, um, I think that that's okay. And I think there's enough incredibly talented people that just have short resumes, but have a amazing amount of experience and a vast desire to succeed. And I think that, you know, sometimes you just need to, Open the door. Yeah, no, see, because I'm, I'm totally uh, for it, and I like all these things. Um, and I also face that, you know, my mother is Mexican and my dad's white, so people say I'm just a white man, but I'm not. But then I'm not dark enough for anybody to think I'm a Mexican, so I, wouldn't, I couldn't go down to the Latino grant office so I've gotten to experience certain things where, um, like I said, I've worked on what I believe was probably the worst crew ever in the history of cinema in terms of how they treated each other. And I've worked with a crew that was four weeks into their shoot and would treat a new PA like he had been there for the whole 
four weeks. So, um, and I know generalizations are bad and all that, but, um, so yeah, so I, I, uh, for me, I think that, you know, one, I mean, let's face it, if the Coen brothers announce their movie tomorrow, do we really want, uh, some great guy out of Sundance or do we want to see that, uh, Deacon's magic, which again, Deacon's is a bad example because it's Deacon's. So, I think uh, you brought up such great points there with that answer. So I just want to say that was a really great answer. Um, uh, And of course uh, there is those things where it's like, Hey, you know, Scorsese and De Niro, uh, they've made 10 films and that magic's not going to come from someone besides De Niro and Scorsese. So interesting thing. And um, what I, what I've always wanted to know, because I've never been able to do it is, uh, unless somebody tells me it's about their life or whatever, and this will be one of my last questions and we really appreciate your time. Unless somebody tells me this is specifically about my life and they're from India and all the characters are from India. I've really like one of my favorite movies used to be big and still is and a league of their own and Awakenings, And I've gone back and watched them and I've never been able to say I can feel the spirit of a non-penis behind the camera, or we obviously know some of the gratuitous violence of Casino is it's obvious Scorsese's a man, but um, I'm wondering what you think about how would we detect it? Like if I was to, if, if we were to take 50 men, 50 women, put them in a theater, not tell them any credit names and then ask them to come out and say what sex they thought made it and literally have it be where it's not just, Oh, of course it's a man to where we really did take, say, uh, Valerie Weiss's The Archer and showed it, who would actually be able to actually say, you know what, I know because of this, this, and this that it wasn't a man or because of this, this, and this that it wasn't a woman. So do you feel that there's actually a way that you can watch a film and know aside from seeing the credits? No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think that, you know, there's certainly a woman's gaze, which gets talked about as, you know, when you have a woman female or woman cinematographer and how to interpret their their gaze and the way that they see things. But I would say that, you know, if you ask the majority of people, um, you know, did a man or a woman make point break? Like almost everyone who doesn't know who Catherine Bigelow is, still totally think that Point Break is made by a woman. I mean, you know, she makes these um, films that are typically about, you know, men for the most part and war and action. And stereotypically, these aren't stories that women tell, um, you know, stereotypically. Uh, And she's a ridiculously amazing Academy Award-winning director um, who tells stories that um, that have a lot of universal appeal, um, you know. And then you know we have people like Sofia Coppola, who is you know extraordinarily feminine, um, and she loves telling women's stories, you know. But on the other hand, um, lots of men are excellent at telling women's stories. So no, I don't think that I can necessarily tell. And I think most people can't. And I think that that's even more indicative of why, um, you know, it's it's the talent that matters, 
more than you know the the gender of the person and how they and how they identify to society. It's you know I mean I think that if you ask most people in 1999, like uh, did men or women make the Matrix? Um, I think very very few people in 99 would have said, oh yeah, it's definitely two women, for sure, right? Right. Um, and it, right. it was two women. It, you know, it was two people who hadn't yet um, transitioned. Uh, and so, I mean, I think that that's, and I think that also just, again, you know, answers its own question in that here are two people who are some of the most, made some of like the most famous films, like The Matrix was a very influential um, film. And now that they are both women, they're not getting work. Interesting. You know, I, I thank you for sharing that because I, I didn't know those those films when they came out got before I saw them got so overhyped that sometimes too much hype will kill a film for me because I like to have no bias. I like to, you know, other than obviously we're going to love to see this Scorsese, Pacino, Pesci, De Niro movie, or I can't wait to see Ocean's 8. I mean, I'm just so jazzed about that. Um, but it really did uh, what you just said, like Catherine Bigelow. I mean, I grew up in Hawaii and Point Break was like, what everybody loved and would just throw on in the background of a party or have point break party and you go surf and then we come home and watch point break. And, and so I, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I love Penny Marshall. I love Kimberly Pierce. I, I think boys don't cry. Uh, gosh, that scene I think is, is I would put it in one of the top 20 most powerful scenes in the history of film. Um, and so, for me, it's just always been, I think, just because when I was young, um, both my parents and my grandmother were just like, if you ever label anyone, like my grandma literally said, like, I'll, I'll smack you. So I just literally grew up like never. And, to, and what's funny is, Camille, I've had people, I had someone twice get mad at me because I said, uh, I don't see Brokeback Mountain as directed by an Asian man, and I don't see it as a gay cowboy film. I see it as a love story by a fantastic filmmaker. I don't need to say, that, oh, well, the, you know, is he a short Asian guy or a tall guy? Or what other stereotype can I bring to it? Oh, they're gay, so they must have been perverts, too. I mean, it was like, no, it was a great love story told by a great filmmaker. And for me, that's just all I'm looking for make me laugh, make me cry, make me have an epiphany, you know? And so I think this is, your answers have been so wonderful. It's, it's, I'm, I really feel like I'm uh, sitting in a class being educated right now. So I wanted to, I wanted to thank you for the way you've been presenting these answers. Yeah, I certainly, uh, I, I appreciate that. I mean, and I think that, you know, it's always important to understand that, you know, these conversations are about nuance and it's, you know, like, on one hand, yes, for an average theater goer that sees, you know, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon or Brookback Mountain, um, the, uh, the, the ethnic background and the gender of the director is largely irrelevant. Um, however, if we're really interested in the history of film and its societal impact and the opportunities, um, there aren't that many male Asian directors that are given opportunities to make massive blockbuster hits that are not about Asian culture and are given those opportunities. We also have this problem where Asian men 
in our society and in our films are rarely, if ever, the romantic lead. We tend to uh, emasculate and feminize Asian men. It's a massive problem in our culture. And so, um, you know, anything we can do to highlight the, um, you know, the masculine, the, uh, you know, any time that we can highlight that Asian men are insanely talented, masculine, authoritative um, people, if they wish to be, um, is important because in American culture, we do not give Asian men that space and that recognition. So it's a two, you know, it doesn't matter that he directed it and that when, as a viewer, that doesn't really matter. But as a, as a filmmaker and somebody that's in the industry who is all about supporting underrepresented voices, it is very important to call out who Ang Lee is and what his story is and how critical his voice is and how important it is to find other Asian men who want to direct and give them a voice. Right. No, I, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. And just on a side note for uh, listeners, uh, back in November, we had the CEO of, it's called Chopso. It's an Asian American uh, films in English, which is what's distressing. And you can watch comedies, documentaries, all kinds of stuff. Um, and then also there's a streaming service called Revry, R-E-V-R-Y. And it's all LGBTQ uh, films, and so they're now like uh, you can be on demand and see those things and uh, see those films. And one film actually had, uh, I think it had it had won one of the prizes at Sundance, and then all of the distributors said we just can't market um, a movie where the Asian lead is the you know, it was one of those indie comedies where, like, the girl, it's called People I've Slept With. Maybe you've seen it. Well, they were like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The lead isn't even full, like, an Asian girl. Like, she looks that way and has a tiny bit of Asian blood. So it was like, it was this crazy lesson in that they were saying it's too Asian and it wasn't even Asian. So please check out Chopso and Reverie, everyone, so we can, uh, we've, and also, if you go in our archives, uh, we've interviewed the CEOs and the programmers. Um, you can Google it, or you can go to www.talkingpicturesla.com and look in our podcast episode archives. You'll also be able to find a lot of the other female directors that myself and Cameo know that have been uh, tearing it up on the indie scene, as well as, uh, I mean, just last night, uh, NCIS New Orleans was uh, directed by a guest we had um, when we really were not a show that people who direct NCIS should come on. So uh, we are always in debt. I mean, even their cameo, like with guests, I've, I've had some female directors where it's like I look them up afterwards and I'm just like, gosh, we were on episode 40 and could not get into, could barely get into some certain parties then. And like you came on and people will ask. So this whole idea of giving, I, I like, and I appreciate. And, um, you know, with that, uh, we, we appreciate you, uh, sharing your film again. Uh, so we can get people watching your film. If you could just, uh, before I say, 
closing, uh, offer you the floor for anything else you want to say. Uh, if you could just hit us with the social media and once again, let the audience know uh, where they can get your film. Sure. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I appreciate it. Um, more than welcome. So more than welcome. Movie... There's an open chair here for you. You're welcome anytime. The, the movie is Real Artists. And you can find us on all social media and our website. It's Real Artists Film. And our website is realartists.film. And you can download it and watch it. Uh, so it's streaming on Seed and Spark, opprime.tv, and Labocine. And they all have um, free 30 day trials. And then you can download it to watch it as many times as you want on iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play. And we're currently still in festivals. Uh, so this week we're going to be in Vancouver, Taos, San Diego, Boston, Fargo, everywhere. So we're really easy to watch. We'd love to have you uh, watch it and tell us what you think. Well, that is awesome. And, I, and I'm jealous because Vancouver, Boston, and San Diego – are three of my favorite cities. I went to film school in Vancouver. One of my best friends lives in Boston. And San Diego, San Diego. So you always got to enjoy San Diego. Um, so, you know, with that, congratulations. And, and of course, as always, uh, safe travels. Of course, we put that out there. So um, if there's anything else you'd like to say or mention, or if you'd like to mention another filmmaker or female director out there that you think they should somebody should check out their film uh the floor is yours uh before we wrap up yeah um i would love to mention um so there's an amazing film by katherine eaton have you met her yet she she oh. was on our show yeah yeah she's yeah she's awesome i love i love katherine so i would really highly recommend if you can uh seeing Catherine Eaton's film, The Sounding, uh, it's, still, um, it's still touring. It's amazing. It is the story of a, a woman who has been silent for her entire life and then suddenly only starts speaking in Shakespearean verse. Her film is absolutely wonderful, and uh, I highly recommend you see it and talk to her. She, is, um, she stars in it. She directs it. She wrote it. She's a phenomenal person, and obviously, um, you know, she, she's been interviewed on the show, so you should go back and listen to that. Uh, it'll be amazing. Um, the other thing that I, I think has been another movie that's been amazing is uh, called Rada and Donna, and uh, that movie has also sort of been making, uh, making the rounds. It's by Dana Opusik. She's out of um, the U.K., and Rana and Donna is in the Blue Stocking Festival, so you can also see it with my movie at uh, in Boston this weekend. Um, and it is just a utterly delightful short film. Uh, Dana is a powerhouse director, and everyone who sees this film absolutely loves it. And I show it to people. She let me download it. Um, I show it to people when they're sad or upset or feeling depressed, and it always cheers people up and makes people laugh and it's just wonderful. Uh, so yeah, so those are two uh, women filmmakers. And I'd also like to just say that um, there's a movie by a woman named Jennifer Fang. Uh, 
and she made a movie called Advantageous. And that's available on Netflix, so you can watch it right now. She's an astonishing um, filmmaker that I got to meet just before Advantageous came out. And it, it went to uh, it went out to uh, Sundance, and she's currently working on a lot of TV. She's done um, The Exorcist, Riverdale, The Expanse, and she's currently working on Cloak and Dagger, the, the first se- uh, season. So watch, watch Advantageous, and you'll be able to start seeing her in all these amazing TV shows. Excellent. Well, and just so I'm clear here, so we were letting the audience know, is this in order to keep her job at a biomedical engineering firm that advantageous? Yes, that's the advantageous. Okay, cool. So, yeah, it's on Netflix, everyone, like Cameo said. Uh, I just wanted to clarify that it was streaming because some movies are only on DVD on Netflix. So I'm just adding that to the queue. And thank you, Cameo, because I have over 25 hours of screeners to watch for the film. So, uh, I appreciate the distraction. <laughs> um, <Yay. laughs> yeah, uh, somebody said, hey, do you want to have this person on the show? I said, yeah, awesome. And they said, we'll send you the screener info. And I got the info and I said, whoa, 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 six parts. And it's actually a seven-hour thing. And I went, okay, it's worth the guess, but I should probably ask uh, the running time because a seven-hour thing means then, you know, the three or four hours of prep and the recording that, uh, 12 hours, I could do three shows instead of one. So, But it's all good. So thank you so much for those recommendations and, again, for coming by. And as always, uh, every guest that comes on, they are welcome back anytime unless you hang up and say to yourself, why did I just do that? Uh, feel free. You know how to get a hold of me. Recommend friends, especially for this female, female uh, filmmaker Friday or in general. Uh, the door's open, so... Uh, and thank you for your very uh, well thought out and uh, answers, uh, giving us some stuff and the listeners to chew on. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Excellent. You have a wonderful day, Cameo, and take care. Great. Thank you very much. Okay. Aloha. And that was a wonderful talk. And please spread this around. Female Filmmaker Friday podcast. We'll be doing it bi-monthly. We already have our next guest booked for March 23rd, Victoria Negri. She directed Gold Star. Check that out on Prime. She's been on to discuss Gold Star, but just so you can see some of her work. And she'll be bringing a friend, and we'll leave you hanging on that note because we want you to keep watching and listening. We can't give you everything. All right, take care. Aloha, and have a great weekend.